Welcome to Wizardists. I'm Paul Canetti. This is episode 19. I have been slacking a little bit on the every two weeks publication of these episodes. Uh, things have just been wild over at Maz, and uh, I am going to try to really get on top of the every two week schedule, but um, it's proving to be harder than I want it to be. Anyone that runs a podcast, if you have any tips, please let me know. But here we are, episode 19, and today's guest is really, really special because she is one of the people that made Maz possible. From the very early days, she sits on the advisory board of Maz. She is Sarah Chubb. Currently, she's the principal at Sarah Chubb Consulting, where she works with media companies uh, to help them with their strategy and everything else that a media company might need from a veteran media executive like herself. Prior to this, she worked at IAC and the Daily Beast, which is part of IAC. Before that, she was the EVP of Media Strategy and Sales at Gilt Group. And uh, as part of her tenure at Gilt, she had previously been the president and general manager of Gilt City. And before that, for 25 years, she was the president of Condé Nast Digital. And I was lucky enough to be introduced to Sarah right after she left her uh, time at Condé and right when the world of mobile and tablet apps, uh, they existed, but their potential was really unknown. And there were a few people on the planet at that time, outside of Apple at least, that really understood where these things might be able to go. And uh, we were among them here at Maz, sort of understanding that apps were going to be important in the media space. And Sarah was coming off of decades of blazing the trail for the world of media and digital. And uh, when our paths crossed, she really helped steer things in the right direction and validated a lot of the assumptions that we had about media companies. Uh, and she was able to sort of tell us what it was really like on the other side and gave us great insight into who our customers were going to be. In this conversation, we go back to that time, uh, also even further back, and really hearing Sarah's account of what it was like to be at Condé Nast when the web first became a thing, let alone apps, uh, and understanding sort of how to navigate these new waters and how she was able to draw on the intuitions of her team who were really deep into the tech stuff and sort of balance that with the business needs. We talk about different ad models, about integrated advertising, uh, both in the historical sense and then tying it back into today um, around mobile and other emerging technologies around Facebook and really just how far and also how seemingly uh, far we have to go as far as creating really good sustainable business models for media in the world of the internet. We also talk about business in general, leadership styles. Uh, Sarah shares some great anecdotes about her time in 
becoming a manager and an executive and leading with humor and taking a very sort of people-centric approach, which I really found useful. And my goal for this conversation was to let you all in on something I've really valued and benefited from over the years, which is having an advisor and a mentor like Sarah to learn from on these exact topics around media and technology, business models, leadership styles. And so we get to touch each piece of that uh, as we go. If you are a media junkie like I am, this conversation uh, will be a lot of fun to listen to. As always, please pass on the podcast to your friends, colleagues, family, and uh, feel free to leave ratings and reviews. And without further ado, I give you Sarah Chubb, principal at Sarah Chubb Consulting. So anyway, hi. Hi. Um, It's funny, in preparation for today, I did one of my favorite things, which is to search my Gmail, because I was trying to get a frame of reference for when we first met. Any ideas? Wow. Any you want to take a guess? January of 2011. Wow, that's really close. Pretty good, right? Yeah. I, I think when the first time we, we communicated was right around then, and then we met in March okay. 2011, which is crazy. That is crazy. That's a long time ago. Yeah. I um, remember. Yeah. Yeah. Because we were, at the time, I mean, it, it was, we were working on it, but we didn't have, we hadn't like done anything, mm-hmm. and we didn't have a product, and... I had met through like this iOS meetup that I started in Brooklyn. Um, one of the guys on your team at Condé Nast. Rob Rob Painting. Yeah, exactly. I remember. Who I think now is at Venmo. Yes. Um, and he was telling me about you and how you were um, either about to leave or, or had just left your position after, what, 20 some odd years? Just about 20 years, yeah. Um, and one of my emails... Uh, behind the scenes email said she basically invented digital magazines <laughs> <laughs> and then there are many exclamation points to follow um so yeah i mean one thing that i thought would be sort of an interesting way to, to start the conversation is just like a snapshot of what that time was like in the digital media landscape because of course in your history there's the introduction of the web itself mm-hmm. And we met sort of after apps had become, you know, a thing in the sense that they existed, but they weren't a thing in the way that they are today. Right. It, it was like a theory that apps would be important. Yep, exactly. And the iPad was not even a year old, right? That's I think right. that's right, the timing. Mm-hmm. Um, so the... The other thing about apps being sort of a theory was that um, people like you were using them, people like Rob, who was building them and using them, um, the people on my team, no one at my magazine company um, knew what I was talking about. (laughs) So that made that time period exciting and also very challenging if you were trying to actually get work done. at that time, we were set up as a separate, completely separate operation. So that was fine. It didn't really matter. We would build things in our group. 
and try to develop a, a kind of reason for why they should exist and why they should exist the way we built them. And I came from the magazine company originally, so I had enough context, and I, and I was embedded in there also, but I had enough context to understand what would matter for the magazine when we built these apps. But then we would walk across the street and show them to the magazine people, and there was a fairly broad range of response that you would get as a result of that because no one used them. So how do you understand what I'm showing you if it's just kind of a theory? And it's kind of wild. Why did you believe in it then? Mostly because I worked with really smart people like Rob. So I, I found... I, I loved my job, loved it. And um, if you want to go back really far, we can talk about the early web days, which were completely nuts. Yes, um, that's another question I had. Um, but in that app apps moment, the first we we built a couple of the first i phone apps, um, and I didn't even know what they were until people from my team came to me and said, "Hey, they're going to be these things called apps on the iPhone." And here's what we think we could do as a result and sketched out for me what they wanted to build. And they were much smarter than me. So I, I was like, yes, please go do that. Um, and what we heard years later, a couple years later, when the iPad was um, sort of a rumor, was that Steve Jobs was an admirer of the Epicurious iPhone app. And that made all of us so completely proud. And we were sort of a small, I mean, you're nodding. In the little digital world, that meant something. In my larger world, people were like, what? <laughs> Who would ever use their phone in the kitchen? Isn't right? that wild? That, yeah, that, that that's, is wild. I try not to fall into this trap because, for instance, I hear people say the exact same thing about Apple Watch these days. Mm -hmm. No one's ever going to read an article on that watch. No one's ever going to watch a video there. But, I mean, even... So this was after the iPad and the iPhone had already been out for a few years. But people still didn't believe in reading on the iPhone. Yeah. As the iPad was supposed to represent this sort of great hope for the publishing industry. But phones, at best, you were browsing the headlines or mm -hmm. something. Um, which, of course, today is ridiculous. Like, I read, yeah. I read books on my phone. Yeah. Um, so we built the first magazine, actual magazine issue app we built was before the iPad, and it was for GQ on the iPhone. And we did it as a proof of concept, both for internal magazine people as well as for Apple, because we knew about the iPad rumors and we wanted Apple to notice us. And we felt that um, it was it was 2009, I think, um, was the iPad 2010? It was, right? Mm -hmm. So it was, it was the fall of 2009, and the magazine business was completely busted by the recession and the financial crisis and everybody was miserable and it was hard to find an advertiser who would take your call and we wanted we wanted to build something for the iPad but we wanted Apple to notice us and we wanted Condé Nast to notice what you could do with the iPad eventually so we went to them with the phone and built an app for GQ for their Man of the Year issue, which used to be a big deal, and it might still be, in November, and they had a big event attached to it, very star-studded celebrities. And the Audit Bureau of Circulation, which um, did your rate base in the print world, um, was willing to count a digital subscription or a digital single copy towards your overall rate base if it looked exactly like the magazine. That was the rules that they had. 
And so we went and talked to the guys at GQ who were very excited because it gave them a reason. On the editorial side, it was pretty exciting and flashy and different. And on the business side, it gave them another reason to sell this special issue that for them mattered a huge amount because it was such a terrible year for the magazine industry. And so the first thing we did was actually on a phone. But I remember a lot of internal meetings saying to the management there, the senior management in the magazine company, people read books on their phone on the subway. I see them all the time. And they just would look at me like, yeah, of course you say that because you're the evangelist, but that makes no sense to us. And that was before mobile was mobile. Exactly. It was, but we're only talking a few years ago. Yeah. I mean, it's only a few years ago. Right. It seems, you know, like we're, I don't know, talking about like the 1930s or something, you know, like some like long forgotten era, but, but this is, this is not it a long time not ago. not that long ago. And style.com, our fashion um, website had an app also where you could look at all the photographs from the shows. And it was before mobile was a habit also, but we were selling everybody on the idea that you could be you know, at a show in Tribeca and you missed the show at Lincoln Center, but you could see all the pictures because it's part of your job. We were heavily read by the trade and you had to file a story or you had to do something and you needed to see the pictures, but you couldn't be in two physical places. You could see it on your phone. And that was revolutionary too. And you think about what it is now and that's, it's nutty. But it's because of experiences like that that sort of, you know, opened the the door, I think, to those sorts of things. You know, it's a two-sided thing. It's what the technology can allow, and that's also what the consumer market expects yep. or wants. Now it's completely an expectation and, and at a very, very high performance level, whereas back then it was like, whoo, look at this. This is unusual. And, you know, there were not that many things in the app store. Right. The apps of the day were mostly novelty, like yeah. nonsense. I always talk about the one that like, made it look like you're drinking a beer. Do you remember <laughs> I don't that think one? I know that one. Oh. I, this is like <laughs> the app. This is like how I would convince my friends to get an iPhone. Really? It's like, why do I need all that? And I'm like, but look. And, it makes you know, Yeah, because it used the accelerometer. So when you tilted uh, it, like yeah. the, the liquid the beer. on the screen, it was like, I mean, come on. Right. That was in the days of what was the restaurant app where you shook it and it gave you a random restaurant oh, recommendation? Um, I know what you're talking it's about. But really I can't remember the name. Yeah. Urban Spoon, I think, mm. and they got a. They were a very small startup out of Seattle, and they got a huge amount of attention and money because they were noticed in the App Store because you shook it and it gave you a random restaurant right. recommendation. It was great. So backing up a bit further, you you alluded to it, but you know it seems like you have a knack for being evangelists for emerging technologies. Uh, the web that sort of really opened up this whole Pandora's box of which I considered the the sort of app revolution and everything that's come since as just sort of a continued ripple effect of delivering content over the internet in different ways, which really started, you know, uh, at least 10 years before when we're talking about. So what was it like to work at a traditional media company then and to sort of be one of the people that I would imagine was trying to convince everyone else, like, hey, like the World Wide Web is is an important thing. We should probably, you know, be paying attention to this. So I got very lucky um, because I was not I was not the first person to have that thought, um, and I don't know that I would have been smart enough to have that thought. But um, one of the owners of the company, who was my boss for many years, was the one who got them into it, and. He was involved with the MIT Media Lab, and he was just a curious person about technology. 
And as a result of his enthusiasm, they started very small digital groups um, at the newspaper division um, within the magazine company, although we were set up separately, but as part of the magazine company. And they own a, owned a book publishing company at the time also. So um, I, was, I was working in print. I was at the magazines. Um, my first con- Condé Nast job was at Vogue, which is as printy as they come um, in its heritage anyway, the you know, best of the best, and very fun to work there. But they asked me if I would be willing to move to run the digital division because the woman who invented Epicurious, who was really the creator of the really fantastic first stuff, was being moved somewhere else in the company. And so she was a a creative person, an editorial person, and I was a business person. I came from the business side. And I moved into a very small group where there was um, someone she had hired who was phenomenal creatively, and this tiny little scrappy team that had been doing these interesting things that I didn't know anything about because I'd been over working at my magazine. And um, I learned a lot from them, and we all learned a lot together. And we kind of eventually, and eventually, you know, because it moved really fast, so I'd say a week later, but <laughs> whatever the time frame was, um, we were just inventing stuff, um, meaning there was no advertising model. And so in the early days, what everybody did in from the media business was kind of tried to strap whatever they knew how to do onto this new thing. What, what we weren't doing was just putting the magazines online, which some, some companies were. Um, but Epicurious was this amazing invention that pulled together all the recipes from Bon Appetit and Gourmet magazines and um, made them searchable. Everything was in HTML. It wasn't a real database. It sort of you, it behaved enough that you might think it was a database, but um, it was w- what we talked a lot about back then was functionality because it's no one wanted to read online because you were connecting via a modem. In the early days, it was a twenty-eight-eight modem. Fifty-six-six was like woo, very exciting. <laughs> um, and the colors were very simple. The photos were not good. Um, and so what could it actually do for you, right? So we had a travel site so you could go and search for hotels and destinations with recipes. It was very simple but very satisfying if you were really into cooking. Um, and one of the things we found was that people who were really into cooking really wanted to talk to each other about um, cooking. And we didn't necessarily expect this would happen, but it turned into one of the biggest features on Epicurious was that there was there were so many comments. So I substituted yogurt instead of the sour cream. Try it with you know this spice instead of this one. Um, no, this isn't good. Try this other one. And there was there were forums. They actually um, there was a group within the community that demanded live chat, and the, the editorial team resisted for a long time, and finally just gave them live chat because they wouldn't leave them alone. The chat was um, very old fashioned chat. I don't remember what it was, but it was pretty clunky. And that was completely social. The recipe swap was forums, old-fashioned forums. And the chat was just, they liked each other because they were all into cooking, but they were all from all over the place. So the early days were sort of a study in um, what do people get excited about with something new like this. With the early days of the internet, that's basically what people got excited about. And we talked about it in terms of categories of interest, right? If you were really into food and cooking, this was a place that you would find other people like that. We didn't do fashion 
in the early days because you couldn't do it well, right? And we, if we were going to be representing Condé Nast, which was the home of Vogue and GQ and these amazing iconic brands, we couldn't, it couldn't look bad. And photos took forever. You couldn't actually make it a satisfying experience. So um, we fiddled around with, you know, what would an ad look like? How would you serve the ad? This was before ad servers even. I think the first ad server was in my first year there. But before that, it was all just manually coded. It was ridiculous. Um, We didn't know what to charge. I would have these fights with ad agency people that I'd known for my whole career around what the CPM cost per thousand would be for the ad. And I'm like, we didn't have any stats. So I couldn't really tell you how many people saw your ad. And everything was double counted anyway. And it was really fun. (laughs) Um, It was really fun. I had worked on magazine launches um, several earlier in my career. So it sort of reminded me of that. It's like you have to have a story. You have to figure out where you can push whatever the thing is. Um, And it happened... It, everything with the web happened really fast. Um, so, you know, we went from nothing but HTML and um, 26.6 to a 56.6 to a T1 line kind of world where we also were aware that we had a T1 and people in big cities did, but nobody else did. Our, and our Epicurious people were all over the country. They were in the middle of the country too, so you couldn't put too much of a load on the page. And... Um, it was it was completely um, thrilling, and at the same time, so there was the how do we connect with the reader that's fascinating, and it, you know, really, in an advertising supported model, which is what we knew, um, all you're really doing at the heart of it is you're bringing the consumer into the relationship you have with the reader. That's true in print. That's true in TV. It's true in any kind of media, and you know, there are degrees. And one of the reasons print was such a an amazing business to be in for so long was that 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 connection was so strong. So at Vogue, the ads were part of the reason I bought the September issue, and that makes selling an ad a little bit easier um, because the advertiser understood sort of what the relationship was with the customer and their ad and the editorial. And it just was very interesting and fun and um, difficult, but to try to figure out what that should be for online. And so today, everything is programmatic, everything is bought by audience, context doesn't matter so much anymore, it's gotten a whole lot harder. But in the early days, it was, it was, not, it was not so set. There were a lot of things that were kind of open. We tried contextual commerce, we tried a lot of different kinds of things, and um, some of it worked really well and some of it didn't, but it was all worth trying. Um, so, when it, so I was thinking about this before coming to see you today, and I was thinking about some of the kind of really old memories um, that might be interesting to you or to the people who listen. Netscape was the darling of the entire tech industry. So again, this is 96, 97. They had IPO'd. Wow, amazing. No one had ever heard of them before. They were this darling. Microsoft was evil. Uh, you know, any you ask any of our engineers or coders, they were like, you know, no way, Microsoft. And so Microsoft came out with the Explorer browser, went up head-to-head with Netscape, and one of the games that was going on at the time was that the browsers, when you first opened them, and so I don't know if you'll even remember this because you were probably extremely young, um, there were suggestions when you first opened the browser. And in the very early days, AOL, who was also a player but different kind of player, would pay you to 
put your content on the opening pages of AOL because they wanted people to feel like there was a there there. There's something worth coming here for. And um, we were we met with Microsoft and Netscape. They had a bake-off, I think it was 97, um, because they were looking for partners for their browsers. And in the very early moments of this bake-off, say the first month or two, everybody thought, we certainly thought, they were going to pay us for our content to be on their browser. And by the time the meetings actually happened, which was maybe four months later, um, they wanted us to pay them. And it was because the VC money had been pouring into content. There were all these content startups that were going to be the next Condé Nast of whatever. And um, they had so much cash that they were like, okay, we want to be your women's channel and um, we'll pay you to be there. And so we went from maybe getting a little bit of cash to allow them to use our content, which we were nervous about because we didn't really want to build their business for them, to them telling us that it was going to cost us a million dollars to be our category, to own our category on their browser. And we were amazed and annoyed. Um, and it was a, it was a million dollars. And then next thing you knew, AOL had flipped the whole model. And for them, it was also a million dollars. And um, we we had the conversations because we were a little anxious about the competitive piece of it. But we declined in the end. And I was pregnant with my second kid. And I was literally about a day from giving birth. And I remember li- being huge and lying on my bed at home arguing with the guy from AOL about the money. Because I kept saying to him, don't you understand the difference between the collection of Condé Nast women's brands and the crap that you're going to take the million dollars from because in the long run, that's not going to serve you well. And he basically said, I don't care, it's a million dollars. And that was sort of the dawn of, I don't care, it's a million dollars versus the way I'd grown up in media, which was build a brand over the long term, brands that have meaning, advertisers were paying to be part of the franchise that had meaning, all those things. And that's kind of, with some with some marvelous exceptions like maybe the new yorker um that's not so prevalent anymore is there some analogy in print like placement in a newsstand or something i mean where you are you're paying to get your brand visible so that you can build the equity in your brand yes and actually it's such a good example i'm i'm glad you brought that up because in the newsstand business there was a very um, sort of time understood calculus of what the payment might be and what you would get back for it. So the September issue of Vogue was a huge thing for us. Um, And the number that you sold at the newsstand was a sign of vitality. You always bonused over your rate base, but when you got around to selling the following year, your performance that September mattered tremendously for the following year. But the the people who ran the newsstand marketing knew exactly what the amount was. And they had relationships with the newsstand owners that had been built out over time. And there was an ROI understanding that was just baked into the practice of doing it. This was completely just, they made up a million bucks. Okay, it's round. It's nice. What a good number. You had no idea what the ROI would be on the other end. No, zero idea. So... First of all, I love these stories. I like it's, <laughs> and it's funny. So we were an AOL household. So I'm just thinking back to that, you know, sort of launch screen or whatever. Welcome, you know, and and, and weren't there rectangles? There was yeah, sort of exactly. Horizontal it was sort of like rectangles. a tile situation, yeah. but it never occurred to me. I mean, since then, obviously not then, that those were paid spots. Like, so you know, you pay me. Oh wait, now I pay you. But right. yes, for years they Isn't were. Isn't that weird? I I feel like that's actually kind of common when you have these new 
media paradigms, like no one can figure out who's supposed to pay who. Yeah. Because exactly everyone, you know, eventually it shakes out. Yeah. And, um, but, but it's even the same thing you hear now about Google or Facebook. The media companies are saying you should pay us and, yep. and they're saying, no, you should pay to show up in the newsfeed. And, yep. and you then know. you find out that they have paid a small number of brands just to get good stuff there, but it's all kept very quiet. And, right. Or whenever they launch something new, like a new, you know, the watch tab on Facebook. Mm-hmm. I don't know this, but it's just me presuming that they're paying content creators. Like there's a chicken or egg problem before you have the audience, you need the content. Nobody wants to create the content if there's no audience and, and round it goes. So you're, as you suspected, that's exactly what happened, but it was a very small group. And they, they sort of fronted them the money to build the stuff for exactly that reason. Right. Which, I mean, it makes sense, mm-hmm. um, but it's still kind of funny. You know, you're like hacking the supply side so that... Exactly. So no, that that's there's a good something, way of putting it. You have something to show, you know, something to sell. Um, so here's a question, not specific to kind of NAS, but, you know, this is 20 years ago you're talking about. Seems like you were doing some awesome stuff and I'm assuming that all the other big media companies at the time were doing similar things, you know, um, a little behind, a little ahead, whatever, at least dabbling. What I really like about it too, is that it it sounds like you weren't just doing sort of facsimiles of the print. You were really thinking about, um, these early sites as utilities, which is where I think media really thrives in digital. Mm -hmm. Um, some, some media categories are great for browsing, um, and sort of perusing, but the utility based ones like a cooking, yep. you know, app or a cooking site, like that's a, a perfect example is a perfect place to start. But despite all that, 20 years later, most of the traditional media companies that I know still haven't really figured out digital, it seems. And a lot of their revenue is, is still tied up in print, even though it's declining. And so what happened over the last 20 years that that sort of early excitement and those early opportunities didn't just sort of keep growing and ramping up and somehow eclipsing the the traditional things. And you could say, you know, it started a little bit later, but like TV companies into digital video, it's not just magazines. Um, right. So I'd say there are two um, really important factors in that being difficult. Um, one is, as an organization, no matter what kind of media organization you are, if you're of any size at all, and really any size, um, the the margins and the return on your legacy stuff, not only have you figured it out, like what I was saying about the newsstand, like you have it down, you know what the model is, you know the ROI, you know what the margin is, um, the margins are really good on print. Um, newspapers were like minting money. And um, the it's hard to find a current media company of from the startup, you know, from scratch um, side that's a huge success. Because the other factor, and maybe the biggest factor, is what happened with Google and Facebook. So the the in the very early days, back when I first started in this, the idea of a paid placement in search was just horrifying, right? How, you know, how can it be a good search engine if people are paying to play? And that was a really long time ago, right? So Google is an amazing cash machine and it is an amazing sort of um, uh, interruption point in the chain of where the money goes, if that makes any sense. And Facebook, all the more so. So the 
in, you know, advertising week was a few weeks ago and all the headlines had duopoly in them, but the duopoly has been a conversation now for a while. By the way, the duopoly is what it is and incredibly powerful. They take some enormous percentage of the money off the table before everyone else gets to fight over the rest. Right. Everyone else is just scrambling for that whatever. For that little small bit that's percentage. left. And actually, what's happening now, and it has been happening, but it's more to the fore now, is that Amazon, who also sell advertising of all different kinds, because you can have a promoted retail post within you know, my search results on Amazon. Um, they're striking direct relationships that with the packaged goods companies first. And so the Tide refresh button and all of those things, or the the whatever that button is called, I still yeah, what is it buy called? it. Dash. But the dash button, yeah, thank yeah. you. Um, they started with packaged goods because they were easy. There's no brand, you know, there is there is brand risk, but it's not the same thing as um, it would be for a fashion company, for example. Well, it's a direct transaction. So compare that to a traditional branding sort of placement where it's like, you know, you're getting mind share so that when I'm in the grocery store a week from now, I think of Tide. Yep. It's like, oh, no, how about you just put a Tide logo on your laundry machine and it's actually a button. And when you press it, Tide yep. comes to your door. So actually, it's funny because the to go back to search for a minute, they're one of the arguments for needing to have branding dollars and not just search dollars was who would even know to search for your brand unless you've done a good job of branding great. But the money, you know, it's like gravity. Everything rolls downhill. Oh, the ROI is better. Oh, it's cheaper per unit. And what's happening with Amazon right now, and I actually just saw an article on Digiday about this today, or a mention of it at least, um, was that the brands are scared of the brand dilution and the commoditization on Amazon, but the the return is pretty attractive. And if you're tied, you don't want someone else's button in there. So you're in there fighting for market share. So that some of those dollars might come from what they spend on retail display and promotion right now, but at the end of the day, the marketing department and thinking and organization within these big brands is also in the in the middle of, in, I don't even know if they're in the middle, but they're in the midst of this massive change because their world has been completely blown up also. And if you go back to media companies pre-internet, everything was about being a partner to the marketing arm of whatever company was your advertiser. So what it means to advertise and market things is different than it used to be. And as dizzying as it is for all of us in the media business, it's equally hard for them. So um, the, the, the combination of the model is different and it, the, you know, the, there was a famous Time Inc. comment early in the internet years where they talked about, oh, the internet's like throwing money into a you know, deep, dark pit. And then that became, well, I'm trading, um, I'm getting digital dimes for print dollars. All of those things, expensive to figure out. Um, it's still expensive to um, develop and maintain a really good digital product of any sort. Um, and that you're getting much less money than you used to. So the margins are very, very small. Um, in the newspaper business, they used to make so much money from classifieds. And classifieds might be one of the reasons you bought the newspaper. And then Craigslist came along, and it was all free, and classifieds went away. And it was millions and millions of dollars for some of these newspapers, never mind advertising dollars, never mind the fact that people weren't getting them in their newspaper anymore, so they had one less reason to even buy the newspaper than they used to. So I, I don't know of anyone who's completely figured it out. Um, I think that the companies that the legacy companies, if you will, the ones who've had this old model and and are trying to adapt to what's still pretty new for them, 
the the ones that I admire that I think are are decent models are the ones that are trying to figure out how to live in both worlds in a in an authentic way, right? So I think the New York Times does a very good job. This year has been amazing for them on the journalism side, but they're constantly trying to push the envelope to the degree that they can since their brand is about journalism and content marketing scares journalists. Um, but they're trying to push the revenue side further. But you know, they've been completely whacked by all of this. The Washington Post, if it weren't for Jeff Bezos, I don't know what they'd be doing. And and it's very good in many ways that he's in there because um, he's a taskmaster, but he's he's believes in the actual brand. Completely different from his Amazon business, but um, at least the journalism is in good shape. Making a big business out of either of those two, the New York Times, I don't know that will ever will ever be, and and probably needs a savior of some sort too. Although I think the Salzburgers serve that function at the moment, but it can't be easy for them. You're the uh, you're the second person to to talk about Craigslist, which I never knew. Um, I had someone out from the Associated Press who was also saying that that's like when newspapers really went south. It makes perfect sense, and it's interesting because. In a weird way, that was almost like a precursor to a Facebook or something where there are these sort of competitors that don't seem like competitors. So I'm sure when Craigslist launched, the newspaper folks were like, oh, my God, you know, it, it must have been a little hard to connect the dots. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure they realized it eventually. And I'm sure when something like Facebook launched, uh, they weren't thinking, oh, well, this will replace media and all my advertising partners will just buy directly here in this aggregator, you know, it would be like if, if um, I don't know, if Hudson News started selling ads and they were so effective that all the agencies pulled out of the of the print and just said, well, we can just put ads right in the store. Yeah. You know, that's, that's kind of what like a Facebook ad is. You know, for the media company, you have to click on the story or whatever it is, the video, just to get to the ad. Whereas Facebook can show you the ad on that like sort of first level. Right. So one of the things that, no, and another that's another good analogy. Um, the other thing that's happened is mobile. So mobile is so fantastic for the consumer. Um, and it's been fantastic for Google and Facebook. And I forget what the today's percentages are probably even higher than the last time I looked, but the percentage of time spent on Facebook on mobile is as soon as they they created the mobile product and started to improve it, it completely eclipsed the desktop. And I think it's old people like me who still look at, at Facebook on the desktop, but people like my 19-year-old daughter, she's on Facebook off and on, off and on all day, and it's always on her phone because that's how she does right. anything digital. And what's happened to the business model as a result, it was already challenged. Um, now you have not only less um, screen to show an ad, but ads are bad on mobile. And and um, Google introduces AMP, which is completely pared down to be faster. Great. Where are the ads? If there are any ads, there are very, very few of them. And what's happening now is that if you... Um, and I just, I'm, this is fairly recent. Um, Twitter, too, I think is doing this. But Facebook, if you put a story on Facebook on your social feed, they actually have a script that writes writes it so that it goes to your AMP page, not to your web page, because they want the Facebook experience to be optimized. And in their minds, this is the Facebook experience. We want your page right. so that you may have 
two or three ads on your web page and or your m you know your mobile page two or three ads but it's sending it to an amp page that has one ad so your delivery numbers just completely plummeted and you didn't even really know that they were doing it until you started looking into what was going on with your inventory and backed into you know why are the numbers lower than they should be because I see what the actual page views are they were mobile page views not your mobile page views and um, suddenly everything is an amp page or an instant article page and that's a whole other all of all of the sort of calculations you've done already on okay well it's less revenue because it's mobile here's how much I would need to make my number for November has now been cut by two thirds because it's an AMP page or an instant article. And you don't want to not do it because for instance, in the case of AMP, you'll go get lower in the search results. If you're not an AMP page, I don't know about the the Facebook algorithm with instant articles, but probably. The assumption is the same thing would happen. And if not yet, they'll flip the switch or something. So you're you're making me feel bad about us being on the owned and operated side of uh, <laughs> of the world here, uh, but but you too. I mean, you know, these days you are doing consulting with a variety of media companies. Do you feel like you have a duty to sort of come in with a with a life raft? <laughs> um, you know, has it ever been tempting to sort of say, you know what, like the writing is right here on the wall. Like being a media company is just too hard and and have you ever thought about sort of going over and and looking at opportunities on the dark side? Uh, <laughs> um, I I love the media business and I don't think it's dead yet. Um, but and and this is a, this is a lot of what I I do with the people that I work with is trying to back into. Um, w- the co- what's your core relationship with your customer and what could you be doing, if anything? Cause not a, there's not an answer for everybody. But are there other things you could be doing for that customer that would um, s- s- align properly with your brand, um, please them, that you could then um, make some revenue from? So one of the things that um, you've seen pretty much every magazine company out there do this past two years is events. Not every brand should be in the event business. Not every consumer wants to go to a lot of magazine events. However, um, there are opportunities to bring the reader into different kinds of experiences, and they may spend a little bit of money to buy a ticket, um, but that might be an opportunity also to bring a sponsor in as well. And it's just one example. The other area that most magazine companies and, and media companies generally have been looking at for the past couple of years but it's hard to do because it's not a core competency, is um, start to develop both efficiencies and also new revenue streams using their data. So um, the the idea of generating um, content that's personalized to you based on what we know about you is completely common online with companies that are digital native in particular. Um, not something that um, not something that the sort of the traditional media company has built the capabilities for, nor does it um, nor does it sort of that's not really where they start from usually. Um, and you know, when Facebook first came out and opened the platform to people beyond college kids, they didn't even really have an ad product because they didn't have any kind of data targeting. And that you know now that runs their entire business as we've learned as well as um, the election and lots of other things too but are there are there um, 
products to be built or are there services to be provided for your customer that could come from what you know now, what kind of data you have? I do some work in the B2B space, and that's an area where the answer is almost certainly yes. It's still hard to do well. Um, in consumer, what would that mean? Right. Well, and, and it does seem like, at the very least, media companies should be drawing inspiration from companies like Facebook, if not just doing exactly what they're doing, because obviously those things work. Um, yeah. And so it's something we we think a, a lot about, too. Um, I know when... when we talk to like our partners at Maz, it, it's always, I, I don't know, it's almost like there is a hesitation or um, there's some relationship with the customer that that they feel like they don't overstep a boundary or they don't, I, I don't know, it's hard to articulate. Whereas with Facebook, everyone with a Facebook account just understands implicitly they're going to be tracking me, they're going to be doing stuff. And it's worth it's worth the trade off because I love Facebook and I love doing what I'm doing, and yet for some reason, if some story broke, I don't know, the New York Times is selling you know your location data right. to advertiser X, you know, uh, then people would be up in arms. But it happens every day, you know. So, do you think part of it is also just the the relationship? That consumers have to media media versus social media and like why would that be why why yeah it's sort of the brand expectation piece of it right so they th- facebook was kind of a bit of a scrum from day one whereas the new york times or the new yorker or um brands of that kind of stature that's not really necessarily what they want from you right um so i one of the things that I could see happening, for, so for one thing, and I, you know, I, I know a little bit about newspapers, but I come from magazines, so I probably know more about that. I think that, and, and actually, I just saw an interesting um, stat today that was published in Folio magazine, which has always covered the print magazine um, industry, and they polled this summer um, polled publishers, print publishers. And some huge percentage of them said they expected revenue growth in 2018, um, including in print. The two biggest categories were in digital and in events, but some large percentage of them also thought that they would see print increases, which I thought was um, surprising. I was surprised by that. Um, But great. Maybe maybe helped along by how bad last year was because they're usually (laughs) year over year, but whatever. Um, I I was surprised. In my magazine years, so let's say the 90s, um, early 90s, but for some years before that, what had happened, those years were so fat for print advertising that the size of your rate base um, was mattered a lot for how much money you could bring in, right? So what started to happen, and all the magazine, the consumer magazines did this, they just dropped the price of a subscription to the magazine as just crazy low because they could make so much money from the advertising every time they took the rate base up by 10000 So you could buy, when I was at Vogue and Allure magazines, you could buy a subscription to Vogue for $12 a year. And it's, you know, it's a big, fat, rich magazine, and it was a dollar an issue. And it was, it was part of, it became, or it sort of seeded the problem because the dependency on print advertising which I understand why they did it, because it was amazing. <laughs> um, the dependency was created, the expectation for the consumer about what it should cost to buy a subscription to a magazine like that was set at $12. 
And I think that that what you're starting to see, and um, I, I think will continue, is higher prices for magazines of quality where the brand, and I actually don't know what Vogue is going for today. Um, I haven't checked in a while, but where a brand that believes that it is delivering that kind of value can ask for more will and the consumer will pay it. And I think that what you'll start to see is that um, you may see decreases in frequency for a magazine like that, but the paper quality goes up or something about it speaks even a little higher of quality, but they're charging you for it a whole lot more than $12. And the New Yorker is actually a good... um, a good example of this because they never did that. They and you know it was a weekly, so it was more expensive to produce. Also, but it's a good hefty subscription price, and happy to pay it because it's the New Yorker, and you know you might get your little tote bag or you might get first dibs at tickets to the festival, which you'll buy, but you have bought into the idea of the value of the brand being at that level. And I think the magazine company companies have had to. Um, sort of dig their way out of that expectation that they created over years. And that was part of the problem, too, when everything started to go south, was that they weren't getting that kind of subscription uh, revenue. And in B2B, you get that kind of subscription revenue. And, you know, even some of the startup um, properties that you see doing pretty well today have subscription pieces to them that charge a pretty decent amount of money. And I, so I, I check in with my kids on stuff like this because you, you hear the whole thing of male millennials don't want to pay for anything. They actually will, but they'll only pay for things that are good. And my, I have a 23-year-old daughter who buys vinyl, and she buys it because she likes the sound and because in vinyl now there's this whole sort of trend of making the, the record itself beautiful. So she's into particular types of art, and she'll buy a expensive... Um, vinyl edition of something because it's beautiful to look at. You'd want to hang it on your wall when you were done playing it. And, you know, this is the same generation that grew up with a 99-cent download if they were paying anything, right? right. <laughs> right? We won't talk about that part, but yeah. No, it's, it, it is interesting. I mean, it all comes back to branding, I guess, um, and, and who the customer is. So, I mean, right, whatever. Vogue in those days was charging a lot of money. It's just they were charging it to the advertiser. Right. And then... I guess it's not so easy to turn around and say, well, actually, the real customer is the consumer, and now right. we should charge them a lot of money. You know, like someone has to pay us a lot of money. Um, and so I guess when you try to optimize for the numbers today, you might be shooting yourself in the foot. If, well, you, know. you might be, but also it's just hard. You know, it's sort of that not? whole thing of like, I'm changing the tires on the race car while we're in the middle of the race, right? So. Yes. You're always um, in the middle of the race. You're always in the middle of the race and closing the next issue. So after you left Condé and and um, I know one of the, the things you did was you had a, a period where you were at the Guilt Group and you were at Guilt City and then I think more generally at with some of the other Guilt Group properties too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I can see the argument for how Guilt and Guilt City are media and have, and then another argument for them being e-com, and probably the answer is both. Um, but one thing that, that I know struck me as we would meet and talk during that sort of period was that it seemed like you really also just had a passion for, um, I don't even know the right way to say it, but for leadership or for, for working with companies and sort of figuring them out. Um, and the, the people within those organizations and sort of optimizing 
the organizational structures and the business models and sort of being an executive, being a, a leader within an organization, how you think about organizations, because my impression of how you think about it, but obviously correct me if I'm wrong, is that you seem to be very people centric. And instead of thinking of it as this is a company, it's more like this is a group of people and these are the resources and who's steering the ship, all that. So how do you think about that, both in in the work you do consulting other companies, but also how you've sort of approached your own life as an executive and as a leader and how you deal with your employees and also how you balance that with like being a mom. And Mm -hmm. I know you're a very like active athlete and just like living your life. Yeah. So, um, I was very I was very fortunate um, pretty early in my career to learn from some really good um, people. Um, a couple who were just amazing at sales because I started out in my career in sales and I don't I'm not temperamentally um, built for being a salesperson, but I was a salesperson um, for a number of years and I was actually pretty good at it. The temperamentally part of it was I I it was very draining for me. I'm a little bit of an introvert, and you had to constantly be out there, out there, out there. And it just, after a while, I was like, oh, God, this is really painful. Um, but I moved into sales management and loved that right away. So um, I understood the sales well enough that the once once I got decent at being a manager, I was pretty effective because I understood what they were doing, but I wasn't actually having to do exactly their job every day because that was what sort of wrecked me. Um, so I, I this may sound weird um, and or trite, so you can kick me if it does. But so I, I come from um, playing a lot of sports and um, a, a lot of team sports. And I just loved it. And it's funny because my younger daughter plays soccer in college now, and I just love going to the games. I And I have to restrain myself from asking her too many questions about, you know, how was preseason and what would you do at practice and stuff? Because I just, I loved it personally, and I have to like give her her space. But I think that one of the things that it, I either learned it or it was sort of what I was drawn to was in a team sport, you are completely interdependent, right? You can be the star of the team, but you can't do it by yourself. And I think what I took into being a part of a team when I first started working myself, where I was you know, the peon and I had to like learn and pay attention to my bosses because that's who I was hoping to learn from. But as I evolved into being a manager too, was sort of this idea that um, we are, we are, as st- we are only super strong and at our top ability if we are really good at playing together. And I think that as a as a as the president, um, I was so lucky because I had all these really great athletes, right? So the people who brought those apps to me when I didn't even really know what they were, I'd heard of them, but they were doing them and using them. Um, I was very aware of how interdependent we all were, right? So I was holding the bag on being the boss and I was ultimately responsible for stuff, but they were really, really important. Um, And that, um, I loved that, actually. Um, I was not personally, I I don't think it ever would have occurred to me to behave any differently because I don't think I would have enjoyed being sort of a boss in an office with my door closed. Um, 
And I learned so much from them. And, you know, some of them were one level below me and some of them were five levels below me. Um, and I, I, I don't know, I've, I found it really stimulating to work with them. And that was true before I got into digital too. Um, and there was, I, there was actually a salesperson that when I was at Vogue, I was sort of the lowest manager on the totem pole. There was a lot of layers there, and there were, I think, four managers in the advertising department, and I was number four of four, three or three or four, something like that. And I was responsible for the New York sales staff, and I'm was back in those days, no one was using digital to communicate. It was letters. You would write a client a thank you letter, and um, I got blind copied on every single the paper. I mean, it's amazing to think of now, but I was blind copied on every single client correspondence. And um, one of the young, incredibly talented sales reps who reported to me had written this very nice thank you letter to an advertiser who she had a meeting with or something. But she was, you know, those letters were used to kind of move the relationship along the way a thank you email would today, obviously. And at the at the end, she wrote, um, you know, I look forward to being in touch with you shortly, except she wrote shorty because it was a typo because it was typed. <laughs> And I remember just laughing and then thinking, oh, my God, you know, I'm supposed to, I was pretty new in my role then. And I'm like, I'm supposed to be managing her. And my bosses were kind of hard asses. And I was like, oh, I'm sure they would expect me to call her out on this. And so I wrote her a note. I circled it and I sent it back because it was a piece of paper. And I wrote on the piece of paper, I wrote, just how short was he? And <laughs> sent it back to her. And she told me years later that she got it, and she was so embarrassed. But she also laughed because she's like, okay, I'm human. She caught the mistake. I made a mistake, but that was funny. <laughs> and she, to she told me years later, she, she was scared of me. I had just started. I was her new boss. And she's like, that made me feel like, okay, you're okay. I can actually talk to you. I'm going to bring you into my clients. I'm going to do these things with you. And I wasn't doing it to try to work her. I was just like, shit, what am I going to say? I'm sort of embarrassed that I have to call her out. And I think of that every now and then. I'm like, okay, Shorty. You know? <laughs> I think Shorty was spending quite a lot of money in the magazine too. So um, anyway, that's... I think that's my answer. When my kids used to fight when they were little because they're four years apart and they would fight, I would say, could we please talk to each other like people, right? And I think I have said the same thing over the years to people in my various teams who were being turfy with each other or, you know, annoyed at each other. You know, I, I think it's it's an, a luxury to be the boss in some ways because they can't do that to you, but they're doing it to each other. And it was sort of like my kids. And I was like, come on, you know, let's talk to each other like people. And, you know, a couple of, I have, I had a client recently where there was some turfiness going on and it was keeping them from getting something done. And it wasn't really their fault. It was the fact that they would had each been given a goal, and those goals were sort of parallel but didn't meet anywhere. And in fact, on the business side, they should have been meeting and had to kind of step back and get them to look at it. And they both pointed out that they had been given these sort of parallel goals. So we had to kind of back it back up to their bosses and talk about that. And it's complicated stuff. Um, but it's not really that complicated if you talk to each other. So, and what about the things that are, you know, harder or more severe issues than than a typo? You know, the the really hard parts of management that where maybe humor, for instance, as a tool, isn't appropriate. But how do you sort of channel that same ethos into things like 
firing someone or having, you know, other sorts of difficult conversations. Right. So I'd say I learned a a lot of that kind of thing through misery and pain. Um, I think the first person I ever had to fire who really deserved it, but I was miserable for weeks because it was so hard to do interpersonally. It was so hard to sort of do the sit them down, tell them why. And I was really young. Um, and eventually you get good at it. Um, but maintaining that sort of human peace is crucial, um, for both of you. And, um, I would say that I, and sounds really arrogant, um, and I don't mean it that way, but there are people I fired who came back to me later and said, you know what, I kind of needed to be fired. And it was good for me because then I went and did X. Wow. Um, and, um, you know, not that many, but enough that I was like, okay, if you handle it well, it's not personal, right? And usually someone, and I would say 90% of the time, the person knows that they're not working out. Um, it's still hard, but... Um, I think if you're straight with them about what's going on. And again, you know, sort of like with kids, like you have boundaries and limits and you have to be clear about them and you can't mess around with them because it's confusing. Um, What was harder, we went through during the financial crisis and right after the bubble burst in 2000, we went through layoff rounds. And we were a very tight group. Um, there was a lot of sort of personal, um, you know, people made friends and people got married and it was it was a very, very lovely group of people and that was brutal. Um, and again, you know, we, the, you know, senior people on my team and I did it all ourselves and um, I know there are companies where it comes time to do that in the top management is nowhere to be seen and HR does it. And that's just not okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't understand that. No, I can't either. Um, yeah. Well, it's, it's amazing that those people came back. That is, that is kind of crazy, you know? Um, and I guess it's, it's again, you know, whether you knew if it would be good for them or not, like it's more that, it has to sort of be working for all parties at all times. And, you know, um, I find this even just, it. it's like anytime that you, either you meaning an organization or you personally or whatever, going like against the grain, or even you were talking about it as being a salesperson, it doesn't mean you're bad at it, but it took it was taking like energy to sort of go against yeah. the natural course, you know, and it feels anytime there's something like that, and then you can find a resolution. It really feels like night and day mm-hmm. when you're on the other That's side of it. That's true, yeah. You know? Um, so the last thing that I wanted to ask you about, and this is an open-ended topic, um, let's say that you could start a media company today, uh, a magical one, uh, where you had sort of all the resources you might need as, as in the right people and, and the right expertise, well-funded, it's all sort of there. But you didn't have the baggage of yesteryear. Um, and it's funny, I don't even mean like print legacy. I mean even like a web company mm-hmm. that's now trying to figure out what, how to survive, you know, uh, that 10 years ago was on top of the world or something. Um, but if you were starting now, launching 2018, 
what would that company look like from a structural standpoint? What would the business model be like? What What's the ideal going forward? Well, there's. The, I'll give you the ideal for me, right? Because I would not try to go super big. I would not try to, you know, I'm, this is going to be a multi-million dollar exit kind of or billion dollar or whatever it is. Um, I, I think that you could build a nice, tidy, profitable media company if you went very vertical in an area that where there was passion around it. And um, I think that what I would try to do first is find sponsor partners who were in that vertical who really believed in whatever that was. So, um, and I wouldn't go very far um, in developing it beyond the idea itself before I had those people in place. So, you know, today content marketing is a buzz thing and everybody's doing it. And there was an article I just saw this week um, on, I think it was, the IAB just did something this week for these sort of in-house agencies at the publishers, and there was a piece, there were several pieces about it um, because it was this week, and some of them are really big and really, really beautiful stuff that they're making. And that, so I would put that to the side because I don't really want to, I, I wouldn't think about going super big, but if you started with um, sort of... Um, anchor partners, for lack of a better way of, of describing them, which is what they used to call these anchor tenants were in the retail mall. Anchor tenants were on AOL. They were like, so that word anchor sort of um, has some baggage of its own. But let's say you found a couple of partners for that vertical that were um, brands of quality also associated with that vertical. Um, I, I think you could do branded content from day one and keep it very clear to the customer what you were doing but have them there for the financial side of it too, and they would be in on the ground floor. And so I think about things like um, uh, young women in sports, that vertical. Um, so just because it's personally interesting to me too, but if you looked at, and I probably would not try to do all sports, I'd try to pick a few that were specific and relatively big. So if, let's think about soccer for a minute. Um, you could go to Nike and Adidas and the people who duke it out all the time for who's going to own that and bring one of them on board and help, have them help you fund it. Um, and the the I, I don't think that from scratch you can charge. Um, so Jessica Lesson does that with the information, and I think she's doing actually okay with it. But when it first came out of the gate, it was like, we don't even know what it is. Who would pay for that? And I think she's had to work really hard to find the right consumer to pay for it. Well, and I guess the volume doesn't need to be that high because she charges, I don't know what it is, but it's a lot. It's a lot. You know. Um, good for her. I don't, I don't actually know what the numbers are. And I'm just using the sports yeah, yeah. thing as an example. But you... you what matters the most, I really believe, is the customer acceptance and passion piece of it. So if you started out of it, so all these all these companies are trying to do content marketing now. They're trying to put events into the ecosystem of what they do every day. What if you started with all of that? Um, and in that particular category, and I was, I was actually having a conversation um, like this the other day with a woman I know who's on, a, I don't know if it's her second or third startup, but she's in doing something in women's sports and I was saying to her, having gone through the recruiting process for my daughter who plays D3, but we had gone and looked at D1 and stuff like that, which is a, a bit of a meat market. But there's the money that's in that 
world is the parents. The kids don't have any money, right? So you can't charge a 16-year-old girl who wants to go to college and play soccer money, but are there services you could provide to the coaches? Are there services you could provide to the parents? Um, And again, just an example, but there's money in that ecosystem. There are big global sponsors who um, are interested in having a foothold early on, and a lot of them pay a lot of money to be part of these camps and stuff like that. But could you could you create something of value that the kid valued? Um, because I and valued enough that her younger sister is going to use it too when she comes, and that will still be around ten years from now, and the coaches all know what it is. That that I'd be much more interested in building something that actually worked its way into the fabric of something people cared about that was still here that long from now. And in order to do that, you have to figure out how to sort of scrap along in the beginning and make some money and I don't think I don't think you can do that without having some partners along for the ride. And you know, honestly, if if Nike and Adidas want to have a little bidding war for what you're doing, you'd have to show them up front how good it was going to be. But that would not be a bad position to be in either. And so, do you imagine in this amazing ideal world that it's just a bunch of super specific niche sort of products like that, and that? Over time, there's just going to be less of the generalist sort of, you know, big companies that, that, you know, once they've conquered, you know, girls sports, then they try to get boys sports and then they try to go for adults and then they yeah. branch out of sports and they start adding an entertainment section and, you know, so, where everything sort of becomes everything. So my sports analogy is probably, it sounds, is probably a terrible idea, but I like it because I, I don't like think sports. Terrible yeah, it sounds um, great. Well, I don't, and, and people are passionate. There's there's a yeah. sizable, you know, half of the of the children <laughs> in yeah. the world are are going to be passionate about that. You know, so when we were first doing um, the early Condé Nast websites like Epicurious, we talked a lot about categories of interest because the idea of what could I actually do for you in general interest that would be interesting to you because magazines were still the mode of choice. You didn't want to read something on a phone or a screen. Um, and I think that that um, a, a handful, maybe a little bit more than a handful, but not a lot, of legacy brands that are broader, whether it's somebody like the New York Times or Vanity Fair, someone like that, have, have done a really nice job of mixing up what they have on their website with long-form stuff and more newsy stuff. And the Vanity Fair, as an example, has launched The Hive, which is shorter takes. They now have a podcast attached to it. So they're doing, I, I, I see that and some of the stuff the New Yorker's doing, just I know them well because I subscribe to their podcasts and I and I see their sites a lot. They, they've done a really nice job of making their brands relevant, even though they are general interest. Um, and Vanity Fair, I think that's quite a feat because the magazine back in its heyday, and it's it's the same now, but it, it used to be like you had to read Vanity Fair every month, everybody. Um, it was a mix of celebrities and hard-hitting journalism, and there was always a crime story in it. But it was sort of the, the mix of the thing that made the package that you bought at the newsstand, and it's really hard to do that online. And so I, I think they're, they're doing a nice job of it, but I think it's very hard to be a general interest anything. And... Um, you see these companies like um, 
you know, BuzzFeed, which started the way they started, and they were never going to take regular advertising. And they've done really nice, the tasty videos, the sort of niche videos they've done, I think they do a really good job. But now they're taking regular advertising because it's hard. You can't sustain it. There's no profit. And so the the startup guys who went a little bit broader, um, Vox, you know, has all the different verticals that they kind of cobbled together, still hard. Um, so if I do launch my young women's sports thing, I'm not that interested necessarily in going on to other, you know, now I want to do men or now I want to do field hockey or whatever it is. Um because it's hard to do it well, and, and the whole thing is to do it well. And like you were saying, to be that brand with staying power, where you sort of own that segment, hopefully forever, and you just go like deeper and deeper there, you know, can you start sponsoring all the local teams and kind of, you know, have, you know, tournaments and it, it's not just about, you know, the the media itself, but the lifestyle. That's a little bit too what I mean about you would start with content marketing, you would start with events, you might have print twice a year, right? right. So do you have an all-star issue, right? Um, I think that, and I, I don't know whether that would work either, but that you, 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 I, what I would look to do is grow, organically grow products that matter to that customer, but always start with the customer. So why don't companies do it today? Why isn't Sports Illustrated just create this vertical and do exactly what you're describing? They're trying to run the magazine. I mean, that is really hard to do. And so we, I don't know, the, the, you see magazines starting and magazine companies too, and Time Inc. has done a little bit of this. I mean, now we're going to have this little thing over here that's different and it's got a different name and it's aimed at millennials and it's just hard to focus on it. I mean, I think it would be very fun to do nothing but focus on that customer and what am I going to do for that customer and not okay, well, I've got six other things and some of them are doing well and some of them aren't and now I'm going to start this other thing because I think it'll help me bring in millennials. The only thing you can do because it's so distracting is hire more people and then that's, you know, your margin and um, it's it's hard to actually make a business out of it. I'm oversimplifying it, but that's how it... No, I can see you've, you've given this some thought. Uh, yeah. To me, it's never been easier to launch a media company. Mm-hmm. Um but at the same time, it's like it's never been harder to run a successful one. So it's 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 a funny. It seems like one of those should be able to overcome the other. You know. Yeah, I think that the the venture capital sort of system creates these situations where you start out as one thing, and the pressure there's this arc to the funded company, and you start out and you know. I don't care about monetization, you know, build as big as you can. We want as many users as possible. Fine. There's, the pressure comes at some point in that arc to um, start to show black ink or black er ink. And, you know, you then you pull back and you figure out, and you, that's when the moment comes of, okay, how am I going to make this kind of money? So I don't, I don't know the inside story on any of those pure plays that I was talking about, but you can sort of see the arc happening, right? In the beginning, you've got all this cash and you're like, oh, how am I going to spend that? Okay, video's big. I'm going to go spend a lot of money on video. But at the end of all of this, what's the actual goal? And if you're aiming for an exit and the VC world is, you know, they've made 20 bets and if two of them hit, they're in good shape. You you are really just trying to make sure you're one of those two. And it's very easy to lose sight of what you were trying to do for the customer because you you have all these 
choices you have to make along the way that have nothing to do with the customer. And that that's a little bit why I say I, I, it would be a nice, tidy little business if done right. I, I'm not at a point in my life anyway where I'm trying to make a billion dollars. I would like to make a product that really worked and that made a little profit. I think you should do it. <laughs> I think it would be fun. Maybe I will. Well, and the irony is you could imagine a bunch of businesses like that then becoming consolidated Maybe. under one umbrella and then you're sort of back where, yeah. where you started. But Right. So when girl power is really valuable, someone will buy you. So I'm fine with that, actually. But yeah, um, That sounds like a good world. Yeah, so let's, right? Let's, let's aim for that. I'm a little biased, but yeah. Um, well, thank you so much. Um, this has been great. My pleasure.